Uh, this morning's reading is Matthew 21:12 to 27, which is found on page 989 of the Church Bibles. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called the house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked? Yes, Jesus replied. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out of the city and went out of the city to Bethany where he spent the night. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it and found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, May you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but you can also say to this mountain, Go, throw yourself into the sea, and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus entered the temple courts, and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things, they asked, and who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it amongst themselves and said, If we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Thanks very much, Rosie. Good morning to you all. Good to see you all. Well, last week, if you were here, we, we read about Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And we were told it um, took place to fulfill what was written in the Old Testament book of uh, Zechariah. Where Zechariah prophesied, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He came as a king, but he came in gentleness and humility to bring peace to his people, to bring rest for their souls. Well, having entered the city... Um, he proceeds, as we read in this uh, passage just now, to go to the spiritual heart of the city, to the place where people met with God, where they came to worship him, the temple. Why? Because Jesus is God, and the temple is therefore his home. And he's not pleased with what he finds. He finds a sham religion. Religious leaders full of pride and more interested in their power than leading and shepherding the people. And people following a whole load of traditions and, and rituals to somehow make themselves feel good, but which were a long way from what Jesus expected of his followers. How does Jesus respond to that? 
Well, we said last week that gentleness does not exclude firmness, it does not exclude confrontation, it does not exclude judgment. And in these three short little uh, incidents, we see Jesus enter the temple, where he has his first head-to-head with the religious leaders. He then leaves the city for the night, goes to Bethany, then comes back again to the temple for more, where he has another head-to-head with the religious leaders. And the whole account is punctuated with references to the, the Old Testament. Quite short in some cases, but as you will see, they carry a lot of significance. And what Jesus reveals through this passage is what he's looking for in his followers. Because to follow Jesus as king requires our heartfelt worship. It requires our faith in his power. And it requires our submission to his authority. Let's look at the first of those. To follow Jesus as king requires our heartfelt worship. It's a pretty dramatic scene, isn't it, as Jesus enters the temple. He drives out um, all who are buying and selling. He overturns the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. Now, it may help us to to picture the scene. If we understand a bit about how the uh, the temple was set out. The temple basically consisted of this. Uh, you've got the court of the Gentiles around the outer to periphery, um, beyond which Gentiles or non-Jews were not able to go any further. Uh, then you've got inside, you've got the, the women's court uh, here. Uh, they weren't allowed to go any further. Then you've got the court of the Israelites around here. Then you've got the, the sanctuary where the um, priests were allowed to go. And in the middle of this uh, temple building here, you've got the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest could go, but only once a year. Now, the traders and the money changers would have been um, at work on the outside here, probably around the, the edge of the, the temple building. So what exactly were they do, were doing that upset Jesus so much? Well, actually, they were performing, in many ways, a useful task. You know, it wasn't very practical for the worshippers coming from all over the country to, to bring their animals or birds with them to offer a sacrifice. Uh, so they bought them when they, when they got there. Likewise, with the money changers, worshippers came with a variety of, of coins, um, but offerings in the temple could only be made with so-called Tyrian coins. And the point is that the place where this buying and selling took place, uh, where the money, money changing was going on, did not need to be within the temple precincts. And that is what Jesus was objecting to. And the interesting thing I find about this, this whole episode is how could one man remove so many people unless deep down in their conscience these people knew that what they were doing was wrong and they acknowledged the authority of Jesus a bit like when a busker is um, moved on by the, the police. You know, they, they know they shouldn't be there, um, but they stay there until uh, they get moved on and then they go without a fuss. How does Jesus justify his actions? Well, he says, it is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The temple was meant as a place of worship, a symbolic place where God's presence was most um, present. Um, it was somewhere for people to come, to pray, 
So for the Gentiles, they couldn't go any further than the outer court, which meant they were trying to pray at the same time as all the um, usual noise of a lively market was going on. There's no such thing as a quiet market, is there? And even the Israelites had to pass through that area to get to the inner court. And no doubt the noise would have been heard inside there as well. So the problem was that the traders had put business above worship. And Jesus expects our heartfelt worship. And that means putting him first above everything else. He's not interested in people coming and making a token gesture, doing the things they're meant to do, giving their offerings, making their sacrifices, not even going out of their way to, to buy an animal in the market, but just picking something up on their way into the temple. The way they approached coming to the temple reflected lives where other things have become more important than God. The quote Den of Robbers comes from a passage in Jeremiah 7 where it says this, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, We are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. He also says here, the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah, who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Well, what are the lessons we can take away from this today? Well, the obvious lesson, which I'm sure you know, is that being a follower of Jesus is not just about turning up to church on a Sunday and living the rest of the life, of the week, that life which dishonors God. Being a follower of Jesus is about a relationship with him uh, that we need to invest in every day of our lives. He knows our thoughts, he knows our hearts, and so we can't deceive him, even if we can deceive others. Are we preparing our hearts to to meet with God before we arrive there. When we do gather together, are we treating that time as really special? Even think of the time you might prepare for a, a job interview or an important business meeting or maybe going out on a date. How much time do we spend preparing to meet with God and his people? Are we arriving in plenty of time to, to settle ourselves spiritually and emotionally? Have we maybe thought about getting here at 10 o'clock and joining with others to commit to pray for the service? Praying for those taking part, praying for our children and young people, uh, praying for those who maybe are just struggling to get here. Well, the passage where this quote, my house will be called a house of prayer comes from, is Isaiah 56, again from the Old Testament. If you've got your Bibles handy, if you'd like to turn back to, to that, if you've got a church Bible, you'll find it's on page 744. And this shows just how important uh, worship is to God, and, and in particular, in particular this, the Sabbath. 
that God, that his people are willing to set aside a day to focus on God in all the busyness of their lives. Let me read from verse 4 down to verse 7. To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me, and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name, better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord, to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant. These I will bring to my holy mountain, and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. There are some wonderful promises in there, aren't there? I will give them a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name, a name that will endure forever. I will give them joy in my house of prayer. One of the priorities we have identified as a church for the year ahead is how do we find spiritual rest in the midst of busy lives? The Lord's Day has been given to us as a gift. How do we, how do we use that gift? How do we spend it? We know it's not good for us to, to work on a, on a Sunday, and yet we convince ourselves that it's okay just to check a few emails, maybe to do a little bit of work to get ahead of the game for, for Monday morning. I remember when I was working in the, in a bank, and I justified it by saying, I've got no choice, I've just got to get this finished for Monday morning. The clients are expecting it. I don't have a choice. But of course we do have a choice, don't we? Who are we worshipping? Even working as a pastor. You know, there's a temptation to do work on the Lord's Day that can wait. We won't relieve the burden of work by doing more work at a time when we should be focused on God and enjoying him. We just become more weighed down by it. God wants to bless us. He says, I will give them joy in my house of prayer. And we would experience that blessing if we worship him with all of our hearts. Going back to the passage in Matthew, it continues with what worship should be about. Not us coming and somehow justifying ourselves before God, but us coming in our need to be blessed by God. It says in verse 14, the blind and the lame (coughs) came to him at the temple and he healed them. We come to worship with our needs, looking to be healed, to be forgiven, to be restored, to be built up in our faith. If we come thinking we're coming to do God a favor somehow, then we've not come with the right attitude of our hearts. Verse 15 is quite striking, isn't it? Because then we're told, but when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that Jesus did, and the children shouting in the temple court, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Why were they indignant? Because Jesus was healing people? And they didn't believe that he was the, the son of God? They were arrogant enough to think they knew best. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? And Jesus replies with great gentleness, yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read 
From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth praise. Jesus is not looking for those who are impressive in the eyes of the world, who seek status and authority. He's looking for those who love him, who worship him with their hearts. And we have a lot we can learn from children um, in terms of their innocent acceptance of who he is and what it means to follow him and trust him. But so often we're caught up in pretending that we've got things all sorted when underneath we're struggling. Jesus leaves the Jewish leaders. He goes out of the temple and the city to stay the night in the nearby village of Bethany. And we're told uh, that he's up early in the morning and he goes back to Jerusalem. And as he does so, we're told uh, in verse 18, seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. And immediately the tree withered. And when the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly, they asked. Well, what's going on here? So that sounds a little bit weird, doesn't it? Um, there's no quote this time. But knowledge of the Old Testament does help us to understand it. Uh, the people of Israel have a privileged position. But God still expects them to be fruitful. The leaves of the fig tree promised fruit, and but when Jesus went up to it, he saw that there was nothing except leaves. Well, in Jeremiah 8, the chapter after the one we just read about, which talks about false religion, God says this, he says, Why does Jerusalem always turn away? They cling to deceit, they refuse to return. None of them repent of their wickedness, saying, What have I done? Each pursues their own course like a horse charging into battle. And so comes the judgment. I will take away their harvest. There will be no grapes on the vine. There will be no figs on the tree. Their leaves will wither. What I have given them will be taken from them. Jesus' action in cursing the tree was a symbolic action that symbolized God's punishment of Israel for failing to repent and for pursuing their own course. We've seen from the incident the previous day that the temple, which should be the place of heartfelt worship, was instead a place of barren religion and ritual, attended by people whose hearts were far from God. It's easy to read this passage, isn't it, and look down on the Jewish leaders. But we have to look at our own hearts, don't we? Because if we're Christians, then... It's because we have acknowledged that in our own strength, we are powerless. And it's only by God's grace, his undeserving love, that we have been forgiven, that we can enjoy a relationship with God. And that means that we are now his children, with all the blessings that goes with that. But we must be careful to not allow that truth to make us complacent. And ask ourselves, are our lives bearing fruit? Is the life of the church bearing fruit? In our last church members meeting, we, we said that one of the dangers we face as a church um, that is full is complacency. God is blessing us, but we need to respond to those ways in which God is blessing us. And we need to ask ourselves, how do we respond to that? 
Because simply just doing nothing is not an option. To be fruitful doesn't mean somehow trying harder in our own strength, but it means trusting in God's strength, seeking his power, and seeking that in prayer. See what Jesus says. He says, truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. To be a follower of Jesus means trusting in his power. He tells his disciples about the importance of trust by putting it positively, if you have faith, and negatively, and do not doubt. And trust in God is mentioned throughout uh, the New Testament, usually in connection with belief in Jesus Christ, that leads to salvation. We saw that earlier with the children, didn't we? That verse from John 3.16. But here it's about what the follower of Jesus can accomplish if he trusts in Jesus' power. You can move mountains, he says to them. It's a figure of speech. It doesn't mean literally moving mountains, but the expression has been used to describe impossible things that have been achieved when God's people pray, as they pray in faith. Of course, it doesn't mean that God's always going to answer our prayers as we want him to. And we have to trust that he does know best. I'm sure you're all praying when you're at home before God on your own. But there's also something very powerful when God's people come together to pray in faith and ask big things of God. I know when we do, some people find it hard to, to pray out loud. And, um, you know, that's not uh, uh, an obligation. I know I used to hate praying out loud. You know, you, you worry about getting your words mixed up. You get stuck in the middle of a sentence. You uh, um, worry about what people think of you. God doesn't care how we come across. He doesn't care what words we use. That would be the attitude of the religious leaders, wouldn't it? Caring about appearance. God cares about what's on our heart. Are we willing to ask him for that thing that we would love to happen? Are we afraid that he may not grant that request in the way that we want him to grant it? The more we pray in faith, the more we will grow in our faith, the more we will be fruitful. That's why we are always keen to see more people come together for church prayer meetings, not because it's for, for somehow for our benefit as pastors. It's for... Your benefit is to see you grow in your faith. It's to rejoice together as we see God work in great power. To follow Jesus as king requires faith in his power. And finally, requires our submission to his authority. Despite the opposition of the religious leaders, Jesus goes back to the temple. After all, it's his temple, it's not their temple. Um, And so he uses it for one of its great purposes teaching the word of God. And sure enough, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him and they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? Authority was a big thing for the Jewish leaders and it was based on their their paper qualifications. Jesus was a bit of a problem for them. Uh, He hadn't gone through the proper rabbinic schools, uh, and yet he attracted more people to listen to his temple, to his teaching, than any of them. 
And the question they were asking was basically the same one that the crowds asked when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Who is this? But for them, it was more of a, who does he think he is? For Jesus, authority was about service. Through his acts of healing, he was showing God's love and power and ultimately justifying his authority. Through his teaching, he was showing his authority. So when the Jewish leaders come and ask him about his authority, there's there's loads of evidence that he could call on that um, they are fully aware of. Every one of his miracles demonstrates that he is who he says he is. The feeding of the 5,000, the the calming of the storm, the healing of the, the blind, the deaf, the lame, the raising of the dead. So why does Jesus respond as he did? Why didn't he just simply say, well, my authority is from God? They wouldn't really have got anywhere. They wouldn't have accepted that. And so he responds by asking a question, quite a probing question. And he promises um, to answer their questions if they answer his question. And his question is this. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? Now, the little uh, the religious leaders have a little uh, confab amongst themselves. Um, but what becomes clear is they're not trying to work out what is the right answer to that question. They're trying to work out what will people think depending on which answer they give. And they realize that if they answer from heaven, then Jesus would ask them, why don't they follow him? Because John the Baptist has told the people to follow, follow him. If they said of human origin, they were afraid of the reaction of the people because they believed he was a prophet from God. So all they say is we don't know. Of course, they did have their own opinions, but they were afraid to voice them. And so Jesus refuses to answer their questions. And so doing, he reveals what is in their hearts. That they're more interested in pleasing people than pleasing God. They were more concerned that others submitted to their man-made authority than submitting to the authority of God. And that is humankind's biggest problem, isn't it? That is at the heart of sin. That is why our culture is so opposed to the claims of Jesus Christ. People are happy for him to be just another religious leader, just a person, as we saw in that video earlier in the service, because that doesn't stop them from carrying on their lives as they would like to. But if they accept him as God, they know they need to do something about it. They would have to submit to him. The wonderful thing about a life in which we submit to the authority of Jesus, in which we submit to the authority of his word, is that even when there are things we don't fully understand in it, we can trust that they are there for our good. Because Jesus promises to those who follow Jesus as their king, those who worship him with their hearts, those who have faith in his power, those who submit to his authority. I will give them a name Better than sons and daughters, I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. I will give them joy in my house of prayer. Let's have a moment to reflect on what we've heard. We're going to then sing as we come to the Lord's Supper together. A a song which reflects on Jesus' majesty, on his humility. Moment of choir will sing and will come to the Lord's Supper.